If you join me in your Bible or your Bible app to Genesis chapter 6 and then later on in Genesis chapter 7, I want to first read two texts, uh, Genesis um, 6 verse 11 through 13 and 7, and 7 verses 17 through 24. And the word says this. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I've decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the And then Genesis chapter 7, verse 17 through 24. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water surged and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. When the water surged, or then, then the water surged even higher on the earth, and all the high mountains under the whole sky were covered. Verse 20, the mountains were covered as the water surged above them more than 20 feet. Every creature perished. Those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth, as well as all mankind. Everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils. Everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth, from mankind to livestock to creatures that crawl to the birds in the sky, and they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. And the water surged for 150 days. When I was younger, uh, I remember going to Sunday school and we learned several songs. Uh, one of the songs is on Noah. I'm not going to sing it for us. You should be glad about that. <laughs> but it basically says that God told Noah to build a big boat. And after he builds the big boat, the animals come and they're floating on the water. At our house, we have little kids' Bibles. And this story of Noah's Ark is pretty decorative, pretty bright, pretty colorful. There's animals on a the boat, there's humans on a boat, and there's the waters below them. Never once does it mention what's actually happening. I mean, this sight is not pretty. For those on the ark, eight of them, Noah, his three sons, and their wives, they're hearing the storm raging outside. The animals in the boat are roaring, bellowing, screeching as the, the ark is moving on the water. I'm sure they're hearing people outside screaming and yelling. This is not a pretty sight. And Noah can't do anything about it because verse uh, 16, chapter 7 tells us that the Lord shut them in. They can't get out. Right? This is not a comfortable image. And we've been taught, and the text even says that God did this. It's the Lord who sent the flood. Now, 
According to scripture, death is separation from life, separation from God. So all manners of death is never a good thing in scripture. It's never encouraged. And hope for us in here that if we read this story again, if we read it in the past, it doesn't get comfortable. It's not a pretty sight. It's a terrible reality of what actually took place. The question I want to ask is, what kind of God is this? That he would bring a flood to destroy all life, animals, children, all people, except for those on the ark. We call God Yahweh, and is this who Yahweh is? That he would punish life through a flood. We're in a series called The Story of God. The Story of God. And we're looking at uh, different episodes in Genesis to, to see how God is working, how God is bringing about his kingdom throughout the pages of Scripture. And the hope is that we understand who God is as we're doing this and see ourselves in the story of the Scripture. Uh, last week, Hunter did an amazing job of looking, walking us through four scenes in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. And he said, hey, the, uh, the story that we believe will lead the kind of life that we live. The kind of story that we trust and that we commit to will determine the kind of life that we live. Today, I want to look at who God is. Who God is. Not what God is, because we cannot know what God is, because God is beyond us. We can know who God is. And I'll look at who is this God, the main character, the protagonist of the story that we find ourselves in, the story of Scripture. And the question is, is God the kind of deity who destroy all of life through a flood? Is this who our God is? In the ancient world, if you asked um, ancient civilizations, do the gods, would they destroy life if they wanted to? The emphatic answer would be yes. It's what they do. In fact, scripture is not the only creation account. There are plenty of creation accounts in the ancient world. You have uh, Chaldean uh, creation account, Mesopotamia. You have Egyptian, Babylonian. All of them have a, have a creation account. And in all the stories, they, they, there's the, the head god or the head gods. And at some point, because of a conflict or accidentally, they create humans. And they decide, these little creatures, let's make them our slaves. As time goes on, the gods are angry at humanity for whatever reason. Maybe they're too loud or too annoying. And so they decide, let's get rid of them. Let's get rid of them through a flood. In fact, in some of these stories, there's even names mentioned of Noah, Japheth, Shem, and Ham. The same characters we see in our text. And so what we see is the gods destroy humanity because they despise us. They hate us. And we're annoying to them. And so they would say, yes, the gods will absolutely bring a flood to get rid of all creation. Because they cannot stand us. But then came a different people, people of Abraham. And they also have a creation account. And in their story, they say God made the world not accidentally, not because he had to, but because he wanted to as an extension of his love. 
And in making humanity, he makes us not as something that are that, that are slaves to serve him. He makes us as his image. Right? We don't have God's image in us. We are the image of God. So when we see people around us, we are looking at people who represent the living, almighty God. And how we treat them reflects how we think about our God. And these humans rebel against God, and because they rebel against God, they have to leave the Garden of Delight, the Garden of Eden. And quickly we discover a brother killing a brother, and later on a man brags about killing people. Things are so bad. It's getting worse and worse. Chapter 6 tells us there's this weird thing about sons of God marrying daughters of, of women, and there's the Nephilim. It's just so bizarre. And chapter 6, verse 5 and 6 tells us, When the Lord saw that human weakness has spread throughout the entire earth, that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. That's how bad it is. That God's image are so terrible and so evil, not part of the time, it says all the time. It is that bad. And we're told that the Lord regretted. The Lord regretted. I only regret if it's pretty bad. If I've done something or, or it's something I shouldn't have done, I regret. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. That's how bad it was. The God who is beyond all things felt sorry that he made humanity. And then God says this. I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, birds of the sky. For I regret, again, the same word, regret, that I have made them. God's response is, hey, I'm done. I'm getting rid of what I have created because of how bad things are. But but we're quickly told in verse 8 of chapter 6 that Noah fell in favor with the Lord. Right? God's about to do something terrible and something, some, something evil and, and, and destructive, but we're told what he's about to do is not a finality. See, in the other ancient stories, when the God destroyed the earth, they did so to, the, to remove everything forever and ever and ever. But in this story, God is going to do the same thing, but not forever and ever. This is a redo. I'm going to start over. Because Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In our lives, bad things are going to happen because of our own fault or maybe someone else. And when we're in the bad things, it's easy for us to think life is over. I'm done. But, but what if those bad things are in our lives, not as a finality, but as a redo? A young woman named Savannah found herself uh, with, with the third boyfriend now. She had a little kid with him from the previous relationship, and that man had left and moved on. Uh, and so she's now with a third boyfriend with a little one. And at some point, that relationship turns abusive to the point where he, he threatened to take the kid and run with the kid. And she felt, Savannah felt that her life was over. She was stuck. There was no chance for her. Eventually, someone encouraged her, you, you need a redo. You need a redo. And so she packed up her things when one day, took her kid, and went to a whole different state for a redo. I don't know where you're at right now, 
But are things in your life, as terrible as they may be, is it possible it's a wake-up call for a redo? Not a finality, not the end of your life, not, not this, this, there's more beyond this. Is it a potential redo that God is allowing in your life for something more and something else? That God wants to use the evil things and bring about The flood seems to be a redo, a restart for creation. And, and so we're told that Noah builds an ark. The animals all come, you know, two by two and all that stuff, you know, the songs go. And they get in the water or they get in, in, into the boat. And we're told in chapter 7, verse 11 and 12 that the, the, the waters beneath the earth burst up. They, they surged up and it rained for, for a period of time. To where everything on the earth is destroyed, except for those on the boat. But I want to remind us again, is this who God is? That he would destroy, bring about death to the world. There are two major ways to look at the flood as a response by God. Two ways. Uh, the first way is to say, hey, the flood is punishment from God towards us. We messed up, we sinned, and so God is responding to us as a punishment through the flood. Uh, in this approach, uh, sin is a breaking of the law. There's something wrong you're supposed to do, so here's the punishment of what you have done. While sin may be a breaking of the law, the word sin actually means to miss the mark to miss the standard. And the standard is we're made as God's image to reflect and to represent him. When we don't do that, we're missing the mark. In Eastern traditions, sin is not a breaking of the law. It's more than that. It's a disease. It's a sickness that makes us less than what we're supposed to be. I, I've known people who, who I knew them uh, when they were younger. They were vibrant. They, they were thriving. And then they, they got a disease. They, they, they got a cancer. They, they got something going, going on. And I look at them. I'm like, wait, this person is less than what they used to be. Something about them is different. It's what sin does to us. It makes us less than human. This week, I had the unfortunate reality of seeing videos and images happening in the Middle East. Terrible, terrible stuff. And you see these things and you're like, this is not how humans are supposed to act. You see children, lifeless, bodies broken and burnt. It's what sin does to us. It makes us less than human. Right? Sin is not simply you broke the law. It is that. It is much more than that. It's the disease that infects us. It's no wonder Jesus says, I'm the great physician. I've come to save. And the word for save also means the word to heal. Right? So if sin is a sickness, what Christ has come to do is to give us the cure to our sickness, which is himself. He's come to heal us. Now, why am I saying all of this about sin? Here's why. 
If my son, if we we're hanging out by, by, by a fire and I said, hey, uh, Ambrose, don't touch the fire or you'll get burnt. And he touches it and gets burnt pretty severe. Yes, he's broken a command and broken the law, but now he's also burnt. I don't need to punish him anymore. Why? This burn, the burn that he has is the punishment enough. Right? Why would God send the flood as a punishment if our sin is destroying us already? Well, you may say, okay, well, isn't this the part of God's justice? That we do wrong and God is justified by making things right. I want to remind us again, in the Eastern culture, justice is, simple, is more than simply just making things right. It is caring those who are the less fortunate, those who are the oppressed. And sometimes that means those who are uh, fortunate or those who are thriving, it's unfair to them at points. Here's my point. Justice in God is different from how we see justice in this world. And when God is just, it sometimes means it doesn't work out in how we want it to be. Like I think about Saul, for example. So here's Saul persecuting Christians. I'm sure Christians are praying, Lord, do something. Uh, save us. Uh, redeem us. Uh, bring your justice. And God's like, I will. Not by punishing Saul, but what? Making him a Christian, a believer. If you say, well, that's, that's just one example, what, what about us? We rebelled against God. What does God do? He dies in our place for us so that we can become his heirs. God's justice is not always a, 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 a revenge thing. It is caring for those who need help, who have the sickness of cancer, who need healing. That's why theologians will say, God's justice is God's love and God's mercy and God's goodness. You cannot separate justice from God, from his love, from his mercy. So when God is just, he's loving. When he's loving, he's merciful and holy. So if, if that's the case, what's the second view? I would argue the flood is not a punishment from God. Rather, it's a response by God saying, I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you what you desire. If God is life, we say God is existence itself. If that's who God is, and we reject God, what do we get? Death. Let me demonstrate here on the board. If, if I'm going this way, and God whose life is going that way, I'm going away from God, and God said, no, come this way, right? Because that's where life is. But I'm, I'm going this way. Guess where I'm going? I'm going towards what? Death. I'm going towards existence without God, which is death. Why do I say this? Here's creation who's rebelled against its maker over and over and over again. And God is, I'm sure, pleading with them. But they keep rejecting them. At some point, God will say, I'll give you what you desire. I don't, want to get, I, I, I don't want this for you. But at some point, if God is good and kind and giving us free will, he will say, I'll give you what you want. The flood is God giving humanity what they desire, which is life without the Lord. Why do I say this? In Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was... 
And God eventually let, let us make, right? God makes the world. But when God makes the world before that, though, the world's covered in water. There's no life. It's unlivable. And God comes in bringing about life, bringing about land, bringing about things to thrive on this land. So God is sustaining and upholding life. And when we reject this God who's sustaining life, who is life himself, we're rejecting the only way for us to live. And so here's humanity rejecting God over and over again. Guess what God says? I'll give you what you want. And the earth is covered back in what? Water. In Romans 1, Paul says uh, God's wrath is coming on those who reject God. Although they know who God is, they refuse to worship God as such. And so God's wrath is coming. And Paul says four times in a matter of ten verses, God hands them over to do what they shouldn't do. What Paul is saying is at some point, God will tell us, you want to do this? Your will be done which is the worst thing that God could ever say to you. I mean, when, when I was younger, I remember one day I'm acting a fool. Uh, mom is like warning me. I'm like, I don't, I don't care what I'm, right? I'm doing. And she finally says, you know what? Do what you want. I don't care anymore. It sounded great to me at that time. Great, I'm free. I can do what I want. <laughs> but a terrible reality. At some point, God will tell us, you want to go in this direction? I don't want that for you. Come this way. But at some point, I'll give you what you want. In your life right now, what are things that you are doing, involved in, that, that you know it's not what God wants for you? And the more you do it, the, the less you hear God's spirit warning you. And the worst thing you want is God to say, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. I don't care anymore. Your will be done. But this morning, be a warning from the Lord and say, hey, don't go in that direction. Choose life and not death itself. Thankfully, the story does not end there. Chapter 8, verse 1, after the flood has come, the waters have risen, things seem uh, hopeless Chapter 8, verse 1 tells us that God remembered Noah as well as all the wildlife and all the living stock that were with them on the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the water, and the water began to subside. So when all hope seemed lost, when this story would seem like any other flood story where there's people on the boat, that's about it, there won't be life anymore, we're told that God remembered the people on the ark, the animals on the ark. Now, this is not someone where, hey, God has a bad memory, now he's remembering them. It is not that at all. Right? He didn't wake up and be like, oh my gosh, there's Noah, he's right, right. He didn't, it wasn't that way at all. In scripture, when God remembers something, something amazing is about to happen. And in this text, what's amazing is God's spirit is about to move forward. The word for wind in Hebrew is ruach. Last time we heard ruach and waters together was Genesis 1 verse 2, where God's spirit is hovering over the water, bringing about life. What we see happen here is after the flood, God's about to redo stuff in the same way he did back in Genesis chapter 1, bring about life through his spirit. Land appears again, and eventually the humans come out 
of the boat. And they're told in chapter 8, in fact, verse 17, be fruitful, Noah, and multiply. This is a recreation. As God is starting over with Noah as a new Adam along with his family. See, unlike other creation account stories, where the gods despise humanity, where the flood is the, the final solution, if you will, and, and humans survive in the story because humans trick the gods by building a, a craft or a, or a boat. And in this story, God does not stop grasping and clinging to humanity even though we want to go away from him. God holds on to us even as we're moving further and further away from him. Because this is who our God is. My mom came to America first with my younger brother pregnant, my younger sister. And for a while, because of the communication, this is back in the 90s, there's, there's no email, there's no really phone technology, it's kind of developing and, and so forth. At some point, she was told by, by friends here in America, forget your, your family. Your husband, your two kids, forget about them. Start over. Start over. Mom refused. And she said, I'm going to cling on to the hope that they will get here one day. This is who our God is. Even though we go far away from him, he still holds on to us. He still grabs onto us to bring about something new. What this teaches us is, who is God? God is good. God is good, even in the midst of the flood. When we reject him, run away from him, he pursues us. He never lets go because he's good. He will allow things to happen if we uh, want him to. But even in that, he's bringing about life for all of us. What should be our response? How do we respond to God being good even in the midst of our flood? When you're writing a paper and you want to emphasize something, a word, a sentence, uh, you underline it, you italicize it, or you put it in bold fonts. If you're sending a text for younger people, you put all caps, uh, exclamation mark on it, maybe even like emojis to make it emphatic, right? For the ancient author or the ancient writers, they didn't have you know, computers and, and the style that we use today. When they wanted to emphasize a point, they used different literary devices. One of them is called repetition, where the same ideas that you heard before, read before, are repeated again. So, for example, this is a flood story, a recreation of, 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 of creation, right? Noah's a new Adam, same kind of thing. Another one is called a chiasm. Everyone say chiasm. Now, let me know that for a little bit. Okay, I promise I'm going to come to your house, put my foot on your table, eat your food. Okay, I'm coming to your neighborhood. Give me a second, okay? Let me note out for a little bit. Achaism is essentially where an idea is presented and it is mirrored or reflected uh, in a similar way with some differences. Okay, where you have A is reflected in A, B and B, C and C. You can go already Z if you wanted to. Uh, but let me demonstrate here with, with a short example that happened with my family this morning. So this morning, we woke up and we got in our car eventually. The clicker's not working. Can I turn it off? Sorry. Um, we woke up, left home for church. Took about 20 minutes to leave because we're kids, you know, you know how that goes. We left for church. 
At some point, we got to church and greeted our friends here at church. And then at some point, we came into the sanctuary for worship. And then we worshiped. One way we worshiped was through singing songs, worship. We also worshiped through hearing a sermon by me, of course. <laughs> now, eventually, we're going to leave the sanctuary, right? And as we're walking out, hopefully, we'll see more friends and have fellowship with friends. And eventually, we will head home. You see a reflection here where A and A are kind of similar, right? You're leaving to go somewhere. Uh, B is uh, we're greeting friends, we're at fellowship. Uh, C is we're entering or exiting a particular uh, area. And D, we see here uh, we're worshiping the Lord. This is a chiasm. Now, sometimes, not always, a chiasm has a center point. And the center point, if it does have that, is the most emphatic uh, point of the passage. The reader is saying, pay attention to this. If you miss this, you miss the whole point of what I'm talking about. So, for example, today you might say, E, the center point is that you encounter the Lord in some form or fashion. Okay, now, why does that matter for our text? Genesis 1 through 11 is the preface of a book, of the scripture. And a preface is essentially uh, the section of the book that sets the pattern for the rest of the book. Right, what comes after, you'll know that, you'll understand it if you know the preface of the story. Genesis 1 through 11 is also a gigantic chiasm. Okay, here's how. There's a creation account with Adam and Eve. In chapter 6 through 8, another creation account with Noah and his family. B, there's a fall where humans rebel against God. We see also a thing in Genesis 9 with Ham's curse. We're told that Noah comes out of the boat, man of the soil, plants a vineyard, wink, wink, a garden, drinks of it, gets naked, the first humans were naked, and says his son Ham saw. Saul. Same word used for Eve and Adam seeing the fruit. And there's a curse that happens in both cases. See. Cain and Abel is reflected with a tower of Babylon or tower of Babel. And then D, there's a genealogy of Seth's genealogy in chapter 5, and then Shem's genealogy in chapter 11. Now, this is very nerdy, okay? But this chiasm has a center point that matters for how we should respond. The center of the chiasm. It's found in chapter 5, verse 28 through 29. It says this, Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered the son. And he named his son Noah, saying, This one, this son of mine, will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands, caused by the ground that the Lord has cursed. The name Noah, if you don't know it, means rest. It means rest. Now, why is that important? The story that we believe will lead life that we live. How do you believe something? You trust it. Right? You rest in it. If I told you, hey, I want you to go rest on Highway 25, you're an idiot, E. No. You know, you wouldn't trust that, right? You rest 
at the place where you trust. You eat food that you trust people who made the food for you. Our response to this story is, to our response to how God is good is simply to rest and to trust him. Even in the flood of our lives, caused by us or by someone else, we are told, we are reminded to rest and trust in the goodness of God. That God cares for you, even in our rebellion, our rejection, he cares for us. Now, quickly, uh, how do we rest? I would say two things. Uh, first, learn to be content. Learn to be content. The writer of Psalm 131 says, like a little child, I've chosen to be content, Lord. It amazes me how little kids don't really care for much, right? We bought our kids some toys when they were super young, and I found them the next day eating paper. And you're like, wait, if you want to pay, I could give you paper. It's free, Right? Kids are content usually with simple things. That's why Jesus says the kingdom belongs to such as these. How do we rest and trust in the good God? Learn, practice to be content. Second way to trust and to rest, express gratitude. This is more than simply saying, uh, thank you, God, for what I have. In fact, biblically, gratitude is the idea of being aware of and soaking in God's presence, no matter where you are. That's why David can say, when things are great, I praise you, I thank you, Lord. It's why Paul and Silas, while, while, while they're in prison, are bound to, to, to stocks, they can still sing songs of worship, being aware of God's presence and soaking it in. Rest and trust by being content and grateful. Trust that God is good. If the band will come up as we close. The biblical account has an incredible ending. The people come out of the boat and we're told that Noah offers a sacrifice to the Lord. And God smells the sacrifice, the aroma of it, and God is uh, pleased by this. And then God says, Noah, I'm making a covenant, a, a promise with you in all of humanity. In every covenant, every promise that you make, there's usually a sign to remind you of your promise, of your covenant. So, for example, for those who are married, you have a wedding ring. Right, if you have a bestie, you guys agreed upon a certain covenant, you have a necklace that may say, hey, we're best, whatever it may be. Usually a sign to remind us of this covenant. And in this story, God also makes a covenant saying, hey, humanity, here's the sign of my covenant. And the sign is a colorful weapon, a bow. Now, I'm not a hunter. Some of you guys may be hunters in here, but I love meat. So if you, if you hunt good meat, let me know. I'll come over to your house. But a bow is aimed in the direction of what you are going after. In this story, the bow is not aiming towards humanity, towards creation. It's aiming towards God. What God is saying is, hey, I know what you're about to do, humanity. No, you're going to go out and plant a vineyard and it's going to be a terrible mess right there, right? I know it's going to happen in 2023. It's going to be violence and war. 
even though that may happen, even though you will never be faithful to the covenant, I will suffer for it, says the Lord. And we are reminded every Sunday that on the cross, from our vantage point years ago, that Christ took a wrath upon himself. That God himself died because we could not be faithful to him. We kept running astray over and over again. And God kept pursuing us in love. And he experienced the wrath that was saved for us. Who is God? Who is God? God is good, even in the midst of the flood that we bring on ourselves or others bring toward upon us. Let's pray. Lord God, when we're unfaithful, you remain faithful. And in our, in, our, in our unfaithfulness, Lord, you make a way for life, for recreation, for a redo. Lord, we thank you for never giving up on us, for pursuing us, for, for loving us, for allowing things to happen in our lives to bring about goodness. Lord, help us to trust, to rest, in that as your images.